Hey everyone, Paul here. We're taking a break in our Problem of Evil series to sit down with my friend Paul Vanderclay for a conversation together. I've had Paul on a couple times before in the past on this podcast, and I've been on Paul's YouTube channel. So uh, I would highly, highly recommend, you know, if you're on YouTube, go over, subscribe to Paul's YouTube channel. He also has an audio-only version of his conversations and monologues, and I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy them. But if you haven't uh, familiarized yourself with Paul's work, maybe go back to the first time I had Paul on, and I think we do a little bit more personal background. In today's conversation, we just kind of jump right into the convo, covering a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, we just talk about the nature of truth and the culture war and Jordan Peterson and suffering and the problem of evil. Uh, it's just one of those just super fun conversations for me. I just so so thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you get a bunch out of it too. So, so one quick word: we did record this on the day of the election. Um, you'll be probably happy to know <laughs> that we don't talk about the election. You're not getting election coverage or prognostication or you know any of our feedback on the candidates at all that's that's not really what we're focused on as paul frequently says on his uh, youtube channel and podcast politics is about the now and religion is about the forever so i think i'm happy to report we're much more focused on the forever than the now but we are working through what it looks like for the forever to break into the now and to transform it before we begin today's conversation with Paul Vanderclay, I just want to thank the Deep Talks Patreon community and those supporting over on Patreon. Because of you, podcasts like this are presented ad-free. Thank you for your support. If you want to find out how to become a supporter on Patreon, stay tuned to the end of this conversation where I'll give you some more info. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Paul Vanderclay. Well, Paul, how are, how are you holding up? I mean, uh, last time we talked, it was a different world. When did we talk last? Well, I don't know, but it was pre-COVID. Was it pre-COVID? Yeah, I think this is our third round here. Um, okay. And it's a very different world than yeah. whenever it was the last time we talked. Yeah. Especially in our sort of, well, for everybody. Yeah. But the life of the church has certainly looked different. Yeah, I've gotten so used to this. Um It's just so strange. So my wife is, she's a school teacher. So she teaches school every morning at 8.30. She has her little Zoom session with her second graders and she tries to keep it to 45 minutes or an hour and give them other things that they can do during the day. The, we, so we closed in March to June completely and I just did videos from here. And then we opened again in June and then they tried to, you know, shut everything down again in July, but we didn't, we didn't advertise it. But I had already seen that the, especially for people living alone, older individuals, they were really deteriorating. And that has continued even with a little less of a lockdown. So it's just some people will come out. They just don't care about the virus. Other people right. won't come out. They care a lot about the virus and there are some folks in between. For me, I've sort of reached COVID equilibrium. This is mm -hmm. kind of the new normal and I have, it was hard finding routines, but I've sort of settled into routines and 
because I was doing so much online before this, uh, it's that part sort of continued. So, but the church, I I think, you know, my sense in talking to a lot of pastors, the, the, we have a cohort of pastors in our area that kind of grew out of our church planting movement in the late nineties, early aughts. My sense with a lot of pastors is everyone's just sort of holding their breath, having no idea what church looks like on the other end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we're waiting. And I think, I think some people, it, first of all, none of us have any clue what resolution of COVID looks like. Will it be a vaccine? Will that change the world? Will we learn to live with the virus? Will there be permanent accommodations because of it? None of us know. And so what does that mean for in live, in-person church? I don't think we know. But we, I do, I think many of us have sensed the value of what we had before because we've lost it. Definitely. I so miss a church potluck right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That you know, way more than the, we've been in person in our church gathering, um, a little different dynamic here in Minnesota than in California. We, um, we haven't had, uh, as maybe draconian of, uh, shutdown measures. And I think in large part for many churches, like even for our church, we decided to stop meeting in person before there was any government restrictions. So it's, it's never, it's never been about that. And I, I, you know, I can speak on behalf of probably many pastors in our state that have been like, it's, it's never been about what the, what the state is telling us we can or can't do. And I know there's a pretty big political uproar in a lot of churches about that. I mean, in your state with John MacArthur, right? Um, my old friend, Sean Foyt, traveling around the country doing these Let Us Worship gatherings. And I I traveled with Sean for years in that same charismatic circle that was really deeply enmeshed in the culture war stuff. So I'm aware of that, but I I think by and large part, the pastors that are pastoring churches in relative anonymity, it's it's not been about the state and what the state's requirements are. Um, So I I know that hasn't been the case here, but, you know, we've been gathering back in person and, you know, we tried in between measures as well with, I think there was some success we had, uh, I put together part of my duties was to lay out our church's like four phase plan, which included these intermediary phases of let's meet in backyards and, and small groups. And I think that was really helpful. But I think one of the things I'm realizing is even as we're gathering back together and we're doing all this stuff with live streaming and it's like, we can't, the church just can't be a content factory, you know, especially churches our size. Uh, we've got, a, um, I think, similar to your demographic, Paul, if I remember correctly, we, we've got a pretty good percentage of, of elderly people. Yeah. Um, and in our church, when we say elderly, we're talking 80s and 90s. Yep. You know, f- yep. <laughs> I know yep. for a lot of no, people. That's right. That, 60s that, and 70s, they're still pretty vibrant. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think for a lot of people my age that look like me, that, that they're, they're, their consideration of what an older person in the church is, is like 50. You know, we've seen a real, like, um, 
segregation might not be the right word, but stratification of churches yep. and yep. and leaning towards exclusively young people congregations and things like that. So in our church, like yours, I think, if I remember correctly, there's a high percentage of elderly people. And like you're saying, there's this, among some of them, there's this sense of like, hey, you know, this might be a crass way of putting it, but we don't have much longer and we don't want to live alone yep. in the yep. middle of this. Yep. And others yet still are being very aware of the reality that this this is much more dangerous to them. But it has really, I think, gotten a lot of people, pastors I've talked to, completely re-examining what church is with the realization that if everybody's staying home, especially during, you know, what was essentially like the nationwide lockdowns with the exemption of a few places, uh, where all churches were essentially doing online-only worship services, there was a real epiphany, I think, for a lot of people, and even in our church, where we had begun to realize that um, if people are just shopping around online for the best content, uh, we're not going to be able to compete yep. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. in that yeah. game. We're, we're, we're a mid-sized church. We're a very good-sized church for the city of Minneapolis, as far as evangelical churches go. But, um, it, you know, we, that's not, that can't be what church is. So it's gotten us thinking quite a bit about, which is really good to reassess what is, what is church? And I, I think it leads to me to one of the first questions, I, if I can throw a question your way, Paul, because I've been thinking about this over the last couple of years of following your work. Um, and I, I hope you don't take offense to this, this first question. <laughs> I think really, I'm really hard to offend. So. <laughs> I know, I know. And I think, um, I think you'll get the more macro sense in which I'm asking this question. But even pre-COVID, why do you think your church remained the same size for quite some time, maybe even diminished in size over the course of years, but yet you've been able to build this internet congregation? I don't know if you're comfortable with that term or not, with... I mean, you got 15,000 YouTube subscribers, this really active online community on the Discord server. And I, I've been trying to pop in more because I've, I've just been so amazed yeah. by the conversations that happen over there. And real, um, what I would have dismissed years ago, I was like, no, you, you can't have real community online. And certainly face-to-face -face is the, the way we've been biologically wired uh, for authentic connection, but there's real authentic connection that I notice happening and yeah. a quality of discussion that happens on your Bridges of Meaning Discord server that I think a lot of church pastors would be covetous of. Yeah. So I hope you get the nature and the intent of this question, Paul, when I ask you, why do you think your church, your physical church, your, your, your Living Stones congregation hasn't grown, and yet this thing has grown. I hope that's not an offensive it's question. Not a, well, I, I think about this all the time. Uh, and it's, it's the most obvious question. Why the same pastor can't attract anyone in a medium-sized American city, but I, you know, I have 50 people from Living Stones hear a sermon that a thousand people chose to hear online or the rough draft of which a thousand people chose to hear online. <laughs> What's with that? 
And you were doing the same thing for years, right? I mean, it's not like... I, I've never stopped doing the same thing. Right. I'm it's the same like person. you changed. No, I haven't changed at all. And, well, I've, you know, I've continued to grow yeah, through yeah. this. This has been an enormously stimulating time of learning and growth and development in me. And, and actually, your question, just so... I so yesterday I we we do watch parties. I've started getting into doing watch parties on the Discord server. So I streamed um, Rebel Wisdom's talk between John Verveke and Jonathan Peugeot, mm. and I almost always find myself right between those two. Yeah, because yeah. obviously I'm a deeply committed Christian, as is Jonathan Peugeot, but I have an appreciation for what's beneath John Verveke's mission, yeah. which is that for many, many people in our culture, the way we have done church doesn't work. And we don't even know what work means. Now, last night also, my denomination is about to descend into the, what should now be the familiar civil war over LGBTQ issues. Yeah. And a couple of months ago, a historic congregation in the most strategic classes in the denomination chose basically to inform classes that they were ordaining a woman in a same-sex marriage to the office of deacon. And because of a report put out by their classes a few years ago, it's fairly known that their classes won't discipline them for this. Hmm. And so this is coming at the same time that just a couple of days ago, the denomination released a report that was um, commissioned in 2000, in 2016 by design, a conservative report on human sexuality that it's about a 180-page report. And, and I think it's a fine report, but it takes, the, it takes the traditional position of the Christian Reformed Church with respect to this and a whole list of um, human sexuality issues that are clearly not theoretical in our culture but what each of us deal with, <laughs> if you have people under 80 in your church. <laughs> and, and I, and so then I, um, you know, I've written on this. I'll probably do some videos on this. But what, what's abundantly clear to me is that while, and, and I've, I know some of the members who are, are the, the Christian from church is a small denomination, you know, it's about, 200,000 people. Um, the report resolves very little with respect to actual churches. And I know traditionalists get frustrated when I say that. Um, progressives get frustrated when I say, you're not really resolving any of this either. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I look at what's been happening on my channel and in YouTube terms, my channel is small. You know, I started at the same time as Rebel Wisdom and Jonathan Peugeot and Peugeot has, 
you know, almost 90,000 subscribers and Rebel Wisdom has 200,000 subscribers. So my chance, my channel. In terms of a church, that's a huge church. Yeah. If you, if you don't, um, if you don't make the comparison game with YouTube, right. Call them celebrities. But if you consider the sort of online congregation that might be developing and, and maybe people that have been following you and consider themselves, uh, in the what are you whatever you guys called again the the little corner of the internet maybe they yeah. don't like the term congregation but if you looked at it in that sense it's a sizable group yeah <laughs> yeah it is and and it's a strange group because a piece of this has to do with the you know what I've called the neo sacramentalism wave in the church where Protestantism seems to has a tendency sometimes to come unglued from earth, float up and up and up sort of into atheism and then sort of dissipates and crashes down to earth and materialism. Mm -hmm. And, and many of the people who listen to me and are participating in the discord server and are, um, have sort of become the community that is formed around my channel have very much been in that process. Some of them, uh, never grew up in Christian homes. Some of them sort of followed the the Sam Harris trajectory where they, by the time they hit 12 or 13, or the Tom Holland trajectory, they said, dinosaurs, church, yeah, you know, yeah. I believe in dinosaurs. This is bunk. Yeah. But then when they hit their 30s or 40s, the, the meaning crisis sort of grabs hold of them. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, nihilism, depression syndrome. You know, that's that's what I saw in so many of the people that um, sort of found themselves being saved by Jordan Peterson. Right, right. Because I, you know, my channel started because I started doing some commentaries on Jordan Peterson videos and then people wanted to have conversations with me. And so I was having those conversations. I started posting some of those conversations. And then after doing you know, hundreds of these conversations, I began to notice trends, one of which was a whole group of people had been depressed. And by watching Jordan Peterson biblical series videos, their depression lifted, and they began to become interested in Christianity and going to church. Right. They also were tremendously frustrated because when they would go into churches, they didn't find some of what they had tasted in the Jordan Peterson wave. Now, some of those individuals eventually went on to Orthodox churches or Roman Catholic churches or Anglican churches, highly liturgical churches that don't tend to be teaching churches. And you would think that's strange coming from a man who was giving two-hour-long rambling videos about the Bible. Right, right. You think they would go to a heavy teaching church, but they don't. And so I think that's important in this. But what we've also seen is that for some of these highly liturgical churches, highly sacramental churches, ancient churches, they're getting their teaching from YouTube, podcasts, and, and some of the people on the Discord, you know, kind of sheepishly came to me and said, 
What does it mean that I started going to an Orthodox church, but I get my teaching from a Calvinist minister? <laughs> and, and, and this, I think, is, I mean, any pastor who's been paying attention over the last 10, 15, 20 years has noted the grazing effects that have been happening in churches all around the United States, where people will go to this one church for the music this church for the teaching, and that church for the small groups. The smorgasbord. That's right. And so while I am unwilling to, at this point yet, imagine that we can actually call what we do online, you know, ecclesia in the New Testament Mm -hmm. sense, Mm -hmm. There's clearly something else going on that we shouldn't overlook, but we should learn from. And the only way to learn from it is going to be to one degree or another lean into it and find out, okay, what what are we actually able to do online? Mm-hmm. Part of the problem with the online, though, is the consumerism that, you know, so in the Peugeot Verveke talk, somebody, so they had question and answer from a bunch of um, rebel, wes, rebel Wisdom members, and they had one gentleman from the UK whose father was Muslim and mother was Christian, probably Anglican. Hmm. And Peugeot comes along and says, as many Christians have said to me, uh, you don't have a meaning crisis if you're actually a committed, involved, church-going Christian. Because if the church is doing its job, you're not having a meaning crisis. Um, Peugeot made the comment that he thought some of Verveke's attempt to have a religion that isn't a religion will accentuate the meaning crisis. And Jonathan didn't say this exactly, but thinking about what he said, because it continues to accentuate the individualistic consumerism, yeah, yeah. which in many ways has um, the, the church has fallen prey to and is completely in the grips of. Mm-hmm. And, and then Verveke said something I thought was really helpful because Verveke acknowledged the consumerism and said to the individual, what you should do is start doing some things and then ask people around you if you're improving. Now, I could make an entire video on, on that whole thing because improving is also... You have to have a telos. Exactly. <laughs> Where we, what's, what's the ought coming from? Exactly. And what is the shape of the improvement? What is yeah. the, because obviously in a, in a Christian frame, the shape is the discipleship of Jesus Christ. Right. But those, that little piece of that conversation, I thought was extremely helpful because in the... So in one forum, I was, you know, I basically made the point that right now in Christianity, before same-sex marriage came along, the, the, traditional, the traditional standard for Christian sexuality was marriage. And marriage was one man, one woman. That was, there's the line. C.S. Lewis put it in um, Mere Christianity. Um, it, it's always been aspirational. It's often not lived up to, but that was where churches said, 
this is the standard. Mm -hmm. And the progressives have come along and basically said, they've sort of wanted to say, well, the one man, the one man, one woman thing, that doesn't matter. But it's still two individuals in a lifelong committed um, even though they'll, union. I, I don't want to get in trouble here, but even I, I've had very frank conversations with friends of mine who are gay about this dynamic. And I think some of them have even confessed the reality is you still play out the archetypes of male and female, even in the same sex relationship. Right. That's, I'm, I don't, can't wait to get the <laughs> emails on that one. But, uh, but um, what, but what yeah. happens, what's been happening is that the, the, um, the gender abolitionist revolution has been happening so fast, even that standard has dissolved. And so what it's led to is there is no standard. And, and, and so then I watch people fighting about the traditional standard and I come to them and say, you know, there's no, you know, very few churches enforce any standard on anything because because churches are, are completely consumeristic. The only people who actually have a le- legitimate chance of facing church discipline today in churches are employees. Yeah. And that says something about the, the weakness of the church. You will, you will only be disciplined in a church if you draw a salary from that church, which is most often the clergy. Well, this is connected to, and you've gone through some of this stuff as well with um, Andy Roots, the pastor in a secular age. Yep. This is by and large part the where we've just come to in our cultural moment because, you know, you're, it, it used to be that, you know, and I think Andy does a good job of bringing up this historical dimension of it. You could go back to a Jonathan Edwards and you just scratch your head going, how in the world was Jonathan Edwards drawing thousands of people to hear him tell them that they are like sinners dangling on a web of a spider over the fires of hell. It's like such a foreign dynamic to us because you feel this sense now, we could go through the entire intellectual, spiritual history of this from that moment, but it's it's gotten to the point now, we're in our our current cultural moment, it's like you almost feel like you're begging for people to come. You know, it's like you have to plead with them to see the, the 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 reality of what you're describing. The world is so, in some part, disenchanted. Although I think that that dynamic is changing. I think we're actually moving into a more a, a generation that's much more open to the world being enchanted again. But again, I think that's um, you know, Peterson has brought that up for Vakey in his own way is bringing that up. And I mean, I just think that awakening from the meaning crisis series is, is, is phenomenal. And he does such a good job of that. I'm really appreciative of it, but, but I, you see this, you see, and you see it with the, the political as well. You see the political playing the, the substitute role of the religious now and the, the religious fervor that once existed is now applied to the state. You know, the state is the, the existential God, it's the, you know, you will have to, at some point, you'll have to give me a refresher on God, number one, God, number two, um, <laughs> those categories for me again, but the state functions in that role. And so we see that religious fervor and in a way it's like, why would any, <laughs> it, it, to me, it's similar to like, why would anybody sit through these presidential debates? It's, it's almost like, why would anybody sit through 
Jonathan Edwards, you know, years ago. And it's because that dimension has stepped into the religious as, as the ultimate, as the ultimate framework. But the, what we're left with is, um, a, a real difficult task as pastors of convincing people of a reality that they don't ever quite believe in. And maybe even you and me as a pastor, I, I think I would honestly admit that there are days in which I have to muster up something in me to believe it, you know, and I have status on the line and, and a job yeah. on the line. And so yeah. I, I picture myself in the role of somebody that, you know, they don't lose as much status or they don't lose their vocation or their house or their paycheck uh, if the deconstruction comes for them. I've wondered, Paul, do you think, um, you know, I know for a lot of, you just described the sort of the inroads for people into your work um, coming largely like via what Peterson has done. But I've been more curious, especially over the last couple of years, about whether or not, and I know for some people the inroad was here was somebody that was once again saying that in a sense God was, you could see God in nature again. And so for a lot of people that grew up in my sort of circles of the, the very anti-science um, training, the pedagogy, pedagogy of, you know, it's faith versus science, it's young earth creationism, or else you can't believe the rest of the Bible at all. That for a lot of people, like you described, they have what a lot of Western civilization had in the 19th century. It's this moment of, of cognitive dissonance where you start realizing, like you said, is it dinosaurs or God? You know, and he's like, I can see the fossils. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I, you know, so if I'm pitted with that choice. So I know that that was an inroad for a lot of people. But, you know, similar to what your work was like, you know, Peterson was lecturing for years, just as a, yeah. uh, in anonymity, as a college lecturer. But the thing that really propelled him was his entry into the culture war. Yeah. You know, it, that for me, and that, that's the thing that I've really found really interesting is wondering whether or not you can be a truth seeker, a truth hunter, someone that is aware of these twin truths that we hold to in the Christian tradition of the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. And, and from that, the, the truth of Christ, Christ is the source of truth, goodness, and beauty. And so we can find truth at work imminently within our cultural frame and yet always transcendent. So we, we have that acknowledgement of those, those twin truths. I've been curious whether or not um, much of what will gain traction because we are so submerged in the culture war matrix. It's like we're born into it, and especially my generation and younger. You know, I was born in 83, so I was born with the moral majority and Jerry Falwell Sr. already doing their thing. And so uh, I went to a K through 12 Christian school. Those things didn't exist. Catholic schools existed, but evangelical schools, by and large part, didn't exist before my generation in America. You know, that, that well, wasn't did really... in the Christian Reformed Church. Well, yeah, yeah. You see our seers, <laughs> we're doing your own thing. I just had a good friend actually get got hired uh, over at Dort. And um, he came from a charismatic background and uh, is really loving his experience there. But that dynamic I was born into, you know, kind of like Neo waking up in that pod 
you've just been plugged into that thing. And it seems to me that Peterson, um, my theory, my proposal is Peterson doesn't reach uh, a point of entering into the cultural zeitgeist unless he makes some pings on the culture war radar. I feel like that's the thing we've been liturgically programmed for, is for winning a culture war. Whether you've grown up in evangelical culture, whether you've grown up in a liberal, progressive background, it's like we are so deeply enmeshed in this. And I've noticed it even with, you know, if I have a, if I have a tweet or a podcast that I do that is even tangentially connected to any issue in the culture war, those things blow up, you know, those things blow up. And so I've wondered whether, you know, does the Peterson dynamic even happen without him jumping into the culture war? And I I don't think initially it was even necessarily him doing that to gain a following. I I think he would have said the same things 15 years ago. I've really enjoyed, I've been going back through and even on his podcast, they've been posting some of his old college lectures, right? Before the fame hit. And I think those for yeah. me are the ones I, I enjoy yeah. the most. Yeah. I think the one they just released this week, which was, which is about um, Piaget. And, and the, even the way his lecture was mic'd, you could actually hear more of the class yeah. and the class laughing. And there was a, a joy to his yeah. work there, yeah. a joy yeah. that as a yeah. former teacher, like I can recognize. It was, it's been really interesting and, and enjoyable to revisit those. I think that's where this, a lot of the meat happens. But I just don't know if he bursts into the cultural zeitgeist without the culture war stuff. Like I find Verveke's stuff to be equally, if not even more stimulating than Peterson's work. And yet, you know, there's a, a substantial YouTube following, but he hasn't hit the cultural zeitgeist. Right. Right. And he won't, he won't do the culture war. Yes. Okay. John, so John won't, he's just not. Which is commendable. On principle, he won't yes. do it. <laughs> which is one of the things I so appreciate about him. So do you see, um, you know, another maybe challenging question for you. Do you see people gravitating? Have you had to have difficult conversations with people in the YouTube community, in the Bridges of Meaning Discord community that have maybe jumped in to your work because they are looking for ammo in the culture war, whether that is because there may be elements of what you say that that could be the truth working within a conservative frame, a traditionally conservative frame. It could be truth that is at work within the framework of the the Western civilization defenders out there, which I think yeah. is another yeah. conglomerate. Yeah. And I, I, if I remember correctly, I feel like a few weeks ago you had um, what you guys like to call like a rando on who yeah. was sharing their journey that they jumped in for the culture war, but stayed yeah, for the religion. Called, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for the culture maybe, war, stayed for the religion. Yeah. Can you share maybe a little bit about her story for people that, predominantly just listeners to to my podcast that wouldn't have any familiarity with that and and talk about that dynamic of do you get that a lot and and how do you do people when they realize you're not going to be trapped and confined within that culture war frame um have you experienced rejection or difficult conversations as a result of that i i think i actually have it more in my um 
reputational life as a Christian Reformed minister because the broader culture war has had its smaller proxies within the Christian Reformed church. And by virtue of where and when and the church I grew up in and my parents, I was always a reliable progressive. And so when I started making when I started making noise about Jordan Peterson and because of how he was, I think, quite um, wrongly mischaracterized as a culture warrior. Yeah, I don't, to be clear, I don't think that's yeah. the case. Now, yeah. I, I, I would say from my own perspective, once the fame came, I, th- I think it's hard for yeah. anybody to shut off the acceptance that comes when you, uh, or the, the feeling of wanting to be accepted. Yep. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the book tour stuff, yep. I, I saw the him decadence. in one of the stops. Yeah. Yep. There was, there was a bit of like, I feel like there's tapping in a little bit too much tapping into that culture war yep. energy for me, yep. but sorry, continue. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I've spoken about this and annoyed some people in the Jordan Peterson community with it, because I think, I think the book tour did go decadent. I think he did sort of get sucked into what Dave Rubin sort of got, I mean, Dave Rubin's a very interesting character because he's sort of become uh, a younger, um, you know, Dennis Prager in terms of oh, where, yeah, where he's gone comparison. from the Young Turks yeah. all the way over to um, sort of a, an, a 1980s style culture warrior. And yeah. Dave Rubin would open up a lot of those talks and kind of get the crowd going on that. And And I think it'll be very interesting to see what Jordan is able to do now after all of his, I think his, his, his latest trip to the underworld with respect to his health stuff. So no, I think those criticisms are, are fair. I think he, he sort of tried to walk that line. I think sometimes he drifted over it in terms of his desire to restart the biblical series. I have some hope that he'll come back on the other side of the line and I think engage what I think is the most important parts of his work, but getting, but in my own denomination, I, you know, because the fight before the same-sex marriage fight was the fight for women's ordination. And I was always in favor of women's ordination. And so that kind of puts me in the middle now in, in terms of this stuff. But then in, in listening to, to Jordan Peterson, I, I began to see at least some hope of addressing far deeper issues that I had seen pastorally of living in two worlds. And, and again, I think in this recent conversation between Verveke and Peugeot on Rebel Wisdom, Jonathan sort of laid it out perfectly because Jonathan noted, you know, there's one story here. And in a lot of ways in the West, we've been living between two stories. When we open up our Bible and we read Genesis 1, we read about a, um, a world with water and a firmament and the sun, <laughs> moon, and stars beneath the firmament, which, you know, some people will try to, you know, you know harmonize this thing and say, There's oh, no. no the, around. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the water is the clouds. And it's like, yeah, but no. the sun and the moon are beneath are beneath they're not you know that's not how ancient people thought it's not it doesn't work it doesn't work and so and that's really you know why i was attracted to peterson because i something inside of me was listening to him and saying 
this could help. And I was thinking a lot about Peterson. So anyway, so then I talked to Poe. Poe is a, um, she's a woman who lives in the UK. She's an engineer. And when the James Damore thing hit, when he was fired from Google for posting really a, in my opinion, a very reasonable, um, a very reasonable bid for serious conversation around, you know, some of the issues with respect to STEM organizations and gender. And he was using a lot of Peterson stuff and, you know, he, he, he himself isn't a social scientist, but he's clearly a brilliant guy. Um, and he was reading this stuff and he put a bunch of this stuff out there. And the response he got was just a big power swipe. Wham, you're gone. And Poe, as a, a woman engineer, put out sort of in Jordan Peterson fashion, saw this happen and just wanted to say her piece. And so she put that out on YouTube. And of course, Boom, she gathered a crowd. But for Poe, she had her her mother was a um her mother was a uh, a Christian in the Church of England. She grew up in the Church of England, again, got into her early teens, once started to discover math and science. Oh, this this Bible stuff, this just fairy tale stuff, left it all. And her mother was very gracious for that. She stopped going to church, you know, got an education eventually got married um, and got a job. And then the James Damore thing came up and the James Damore thing sort of brought her to Peterson. And then she starts dealing with some deeper issues. And so she's been, she's been making YouTubes. Her channel's about the same size as mine. She's been making YouTubes ever since. And her videos are sort of like mine and that she'll just, kind of turn on the camera and start talking about what's on her mind. Yep. And it's a weird thing that there's an appetite for that, but there is. And she, well, she's, she's clearly brilliant and articulate and interesting to listen to. And she noted that first, the audience that she drew because of her initial videos were very interested in the culture war. Yeah, And as more and more of her videos started reflecting on religion and meaning and bigger questions, and she was a big fan of Narnia growing up. Um, she's a fan of Lord of the Rings. So she starts talking more and more about that. A lot of her audience is like, you know, we're here for the culture war. And she's like, I'm not going to be a culture warrior for you. Hmm. I've got questions. And then she had a child. And there were some complications that happened in the course of the pregnancy. Wow. And much to her own surprise, she caught herself praying. <laughs> and she's an atheist. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? And, and really, the, the, so I'd, I'd sort of been tracking and watching some of her videos, and she'd been watching some of my videos, and, and she... Then at some point, I don't remember who initiated, but okay, let's do a conversation. And that conversation has, that conversation was really quite powerful because at one point, and we talked about Jordan Peterson and his, does he believe in God? He acts as if he believes, that whole thing. And then we talked about Peterson's comments at Lafayette College about, you know, whether people say or they believe in God or not, 
their religion's really far beneath the surface. It's it's what they act out. Yes. And then just in a in an amazing moment in the conversation, she asked me, "Do you think I believe in God?" Oh, oh God. Oh gosh. And I thought I I think you probably do. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, just by virtue of what you're dealing with. So, so I've long believed that the culture war we are into is a Christendom civil war. And so when I came across the work of Tom Holland, that book, so Peterson, of course, for me, sort of drew me there and partly because of his work, but partly because of what was happening around him. And I immediately knew just by the evangelical circuit that you can bring in Billy Graham or, um, you know, one of these big time evangelists and you can do a revival and you bring in the speakers and people will, will be filled with ambition and they'll hear a story and they'll come forward and they'll say, this is changing my life. But unless they actually have a community around them, Mm -hmm. that's going to not only reinforce some of the things that were, moving them in a productive way in their life, but also a a community around them to help them process Hmm. all of the myriad of nitty gritty things. Now, again, that's what church is supposed to do. And practice too. That's the the dimension that sometimes people that have our proclivities towards the, maybe the more platonic (laughs) epistemology need to be reminded of. And that's even, I guess, part of our work as pastors is to integrate not just the the hunting for truth and the you know in the noumenal, right? Yeah. But it's actual without the practices, without the liturgy of our daily lives, the other practices we give ourselves to will will shape our loves in a way which will reorient and aim it towards the other gods of the age. Right. And so that's yeah. the thing that's really, you know, would probably be the missing ingredient for something like a a bridges of meaning or people following on YouTube and having meaningful discussion is somehow now you gotta you gotta put that together in a community that has these shared practices and the practices will continue from the ground up to reorient you and reorient your heart towards that which is the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. Yep. And that's what Peterson did, 12 rules for life. Yeah you know, their practices, but no, you're exactly right. And so I, I, I watched what was happening around Peterson and I thought someone's going to need to come around these people. They're going to need something to follow up with because Jordan wasn't giving it to them. He, unlike, and I often in those early days compared him to say Billy Graham. Yeah. We all know in terms of evangelicals, the crusade comes to town and the year before they get there, they contact all the churches. They have all of the, I mean, I was that guy for a while. Yep, yeah. Traveling yeah. Yep. I get the basically game. bring those people in because they know that what happens on that night, on that evening of the event won't actually change lives unless you give people a community and a track to keep going on. But, you know, to come back to where we started this conversation, the church has real problems with the track Mm. and, and what the church has basically done is 
you know, it's very interesting to be so, I didn't know how old you were, sir. You're 20 years younger than I am. And I think in those 20 years between our births, I grew up with parents that had, the practice was just in the culture. You, and, and I think as, you know, the time between 63 and 83. Your church culture or the larger culture? The larger culture. Okay. Yes. I see what you're saying. And so the, the irony of what I saw in the eighties with the moral majority and what was that the deep patterns of American consumerism those weren't what were challenged. <laughs> and, no. and, and that's, and when I look at the new wave of the woke today, I just kind of snicker mm. because people are willing to show up for a rally and march down the street with placards and their fists in the air. But what I saw in my parents' generation were that people were willing to move into the inner city or move overseas or work for almost nothing in order to pursue an incarnated vision of church. That was, those were my parents. And that's what I grew up in. Yeah. And today it's, we want justice and we want someone else to pay for it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, I was just I was just reading Kierkegaard last night, and Kierkegaard has this quote that just wrecks me, and it's so penetrating, and it was just as penetrating today as it was 200 years ago. He asks, are you willing to be sacrificed instead of belonging to the crowd, which seeks to profit from the sacrifice of others? <laughs> oh, geez, wow. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk about, talk about, yeah. I mean, and he's writing in, you know, in Denmark, yeah. In the 19th century. Right, right. At the height of their Christendom, you know. Right. Wow, that's a, that's a, I'm going to have to write that down, find that <laughs> quote, because it's a, that's, that is a, that yeah. is a quote for today. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, Peterson also, part of what Peterson got right as I think compared to, I just released another video about uh, the Weinstein brothers today. I've been, in the absence of Peterson, they've sort of become the the focus of the IDW, but they they don't tend to have the Augustinian anthropology that Peterson had. Yeah, and, and so they they tend to become sort of leftist populists, and then are suddenly surprised, and this is the pattern we see all the time, they're suddenly surprised at basically common human depravity. That, <laughs> you know, and, and, right, right, and right. the distributist articulated this so well in one of his recent videos, it comes out of the enlightenment that, well, if you only, if you only liberate people from institutions, their right. natural goodness will emerge en masse and yeah, in community. Lockean, John Locke. Yeah. Versus, I mean, <laughs> I would say Peterson's almost more on the spectrum of Thomas Hobbes in that <laughs> sense of depravity. I've even wondered, too, in, in, in examination, especially when he always lays out his 
cosmology, the, the mythology of ancient cosmologies. I've wondered even, because I've been doing some reading, I'm doing this really long Problem of Evil series um, on my podcast, and I finally made it to the 20th century. I'm going through 2,000 years plus, even going back into to the, the Old Testament biblical literature to try to go through and, and cover how Christians throughout time have tried to address the problem of evil. So I'm finally in the 20th century. I'm working through some of the process theism stuff and I'm going, oh, hang on. There's some things here that actually sound like Peterson, almost Gnostic, because the evil, he takes so he takes evil so seriously. And I think we do. He always starts with, you know, the thing that it's almost like a inversion of some sort of Descartes. I think therefore I am. And that's his bedrock fundamental truth. Peterson's bedrock fundamental truth is I suffer. Yep. Right. Yep. So he starts there. It's almost like that's what was so appealing about the ancient Gnostics was their theodicy in some ways gave you a map of meaning for reality and your experiences, especially in the ancient world where there's so much more suffering than what we experience today. Yeah. And I, I've, I've thought about that even with Peterson. It's, it's Augustinian, but maybe it's Gnostic. Maybe it's almost like the process theists, which are like, mm. there's another fundamental principle here at work along with the good. Uh, sorry to de- derail you. You, no, you have a okay. train of thought going there. That's, mm. a, that's really interesting. And, and again, if you haven't listened to the Rebel Wisdom, Verveke, Peugeot conversation, they get into Gnosticism a little bit. I think that's, yeah. that's a... No, that's a really good point because Peterson does begin with suffering. He starts and... with that as a principle, like that's, you know, t- to me, when we talk about what God even means, um, was it Poe was her name, the girl? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And she's asking you, do I believe in God? I mean, to me, the answer is always yes, because it's yes in two senses. You have the, the Peterson sense, which he brought up so well with the Sam Harris debates, uh, is the, the existential sense in which we, we mean God. And, and what we mean by that, and to tie that in even to Kierkegaard, is the sense in which God is that which sits atop the hierarchy of our values. That right. is just simply the name for it. Right. You know, it's very Enlightenment, modernist. It's very, and this is what the New Atheist did so well, in a sense, was that they were able to highlight to us the flaws in which Christians have talked about God and when they, they use this pejorative, well, I don't, you know, I don't talk to some sky daddy. It's like, well, that's not what Christianity ever believed. But is it? Is it the way that we've presented it? And so Peterson has the tapping into that Kierkegaardian sense of, you know, no, 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 no. Whatever you say about God in a metaphysical sense is nowhere near as important as the, are the aims and behaviors and the practices of your life oriented in a particular direction. And if they're oriented, they are. You know, we do have a hierarchy of values. We do have a guiding story. What sits atop our guiding story, what sits atop our hierarchy of values functions as God. So whatever, whether you want to call it, you know, your, yourself or the universe, it's, it's almost like a, a moot point to me. So everybody has that. And everybody has, I think, too, if they're really pressed to think about it, a metaphysical God. You know, so God is that which is necessary. In the, the, the scholastic sense, you can go back to, I mean, Aquinas might be and Anselm might be the, the guys that best highlight this is what is, we have necessary and contingency in reality, right? 
contingency, I am contingent, my life is contingent around all sorts of things around me, around the air that I breathe, the planet that I'm on, the planet is contingent upon the existence of the sun. You know, this isn't even just like temporally prior, this is logically prior. The sun's existence is contingent on gravity and these other forces in the universe. If you keep peeling the onion all the way back and we provoke people to do so, they will come to a point in which they say, well, I feel like this is what is necessary. For Harris, for a guy like Harris, it's just the universe, you know? So whether he wants to call it God or not, to me is, I, I don't even care. Because in the sense that the ancient Christians used to use, God was that which is necessary. And the thing I, I've been thinking about with, with Peterson reflecting on some of his work is there seems to be, this is what the Gnostics believed in a sense, was that there was a necessity to our material world. Uh, 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 our material world was contingent on a demiurge, you know, and this, this demiurge was responsible for the evil and the suffering in the world. And it's primordial in a sense. It is a real rival. That's, you know, kind of t connecting that to process theism. Process theism thinks creativity is the fundamental principle and that God is in some ways subject, which to me again is like, well, you're not, you can call it something different, but that's not God. Right. So I see this in Peterson's work and it, and it's, it is helpful to people because it's people in a postmodern age where there's been the deconstruction of all meta narratives, their lived experience, if they've encountered any sort of suffering is that, well, I definitely believe my pain is real. <laughs> and um, I don't, I don't know if, as you're talking about here, you know, the, we haven't necessarily had the structures in our, in the life of our church, the practices to help people deal with that pain, to help them make sense of the chaos, to help them make sense of the brutality in, in the natural world. And that, that was the thing that even happened again with the 19th century. Um, was when these new scientific discoveries happened, when they discovered dinosaur bones. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, that, that the discovery of dinosaurs is a relatively new thing. Yeah. And it was birthed actually out of Christian geologists going around the world trying to find evidence to support a global flood, a Noahic yeah. global flood. Yeah. And then what they found was like, hang on a second, there's been more than one cataclysm yeah. And it, you know, the earth is much older than what we think. And now we've got these giant monsters. Yeah. Where do these fit in? And then Darwin comes along and, you know, people I think had long, you could go back to Augustine even, and there's some quotes from Augustine, which Augustine seems open even at that time to there being some sort of process of generation and creation. But I think for Darwin, it was the framing of that process of development in such a, a negative light, you know, the survival of the fittest. You know, he's really influenced by Thomas Malthus, but I think also it would be really hard if you're in Darwin's position to not necessarily see the world as being filled with violence. And, um, you know, I talked about this in I forget what part it is, part 13 of my Problem of Evil series, that, that Darwin, you know, you're probably familiar with this, but Darwin had trained initially to be in the clergy. Yeah, yeah. So he sets out on the HMS Beagle, which a lot of people don't know was actually a naval warship. 
Yeah. The British Navy, you know, they would just think of it as some sort of like David Attenborough, <laughs> planet Earth, uh, peaceful. He sets out on this naval warship and what he sees in the world, uh, you know, accompanied by his reading of Thomas Malthus. And Malthus was very famous for saying that we are in this competition for limited resources on the planet. Yeah. Maybe some of the origins of population control and eugenics. So Darwin, of course, goes out into the natural world, and natural theology is king at the time. People see a harmony, right? Um, people see a William Paley, a famous minister who was also a naturalist earlier in the 19th century, just said, he sees in the world a myriad of happy creatures. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, the lion eats the, the, lion eats the, uh, the lamb, but that's, you know, that's just part of the, the balance and the the order circle of life, the circle of life. But Darwin comes out and he's like, have you seen this ichnoimiid wasp? You know, and that thing throws him for a loop, this parasitic wasp that, you know, the mother lays its eggs in a caterpillar and it eats all of the vital organs. It leaves the vital organs for last. It eats its way from the inside out. And there's some wild videos out there on YouTube. If you just Google, you know, YouTube ichnoimiid wasp, and you can see that, and Darwin comes back from that experience, and then his father dies, and then his daughter dies. And so the language isn't neutral, but I, the hard part, I think, for, for people that have anybody in the world right now is, is reconciling the violence, the chaos, you know, COVID, we haven't even hit at least in our church, I haven't hit the point of where people are really wrestling with what this means. They're just still in survival mode. But I think years from now, I'm really concerned that years from now, even this lone issue of suffering, and I don't want to minimize it, but this single issue of suffering, I'm concerned that years from now, when people actually have time to work through their trauma, this problem of evil thing for them is going to be I'm concerned about an even greater exodus from the church over the next couple of years. I'd like to be more optimistic, in America at least. It's fine in the rest of the world. (laughs) It's growing in the developing world. That's really interesting. Because when you look at the... So, you know, one of the things that Peterson is right about is that people... I mean, meaning is a buffer for suffering. I mean, yeah, that is, yeah. that is, that is yeah. how we endure suffering. We, in fact, we will exchange happiness for meaning. Um, we will, we will willingly make that exchange. And when I think about, okay, well, how has, when, when, how does the church engage the question of suffering now? And there are, there are these, there are different, there are different themes you know, suffering is necessary mm-hmm. in terms of, let's say, theosis, where suffering suffering is the means by which we we level up as Christians, and that is quite clear. You you don't, if you're around churches at all, you will you will bump into those Christians who are saints, and they are known in the church as saints. And in almost every case, if you dig into their story, you will find something in their story that has produced a lot of 
not easily resolvable or potentially right. unresolvable suffering that yeah. they have had to face, and that has made them into saints. That's okay? right. But then you've got these other things in church, and I think about, I mean, you're one of the few people that I can mention the name of Frank Peretti to, and you probably know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. Spiritual warfare fiction. <laughs> that's right. You know, this present darkness. And so I remember there was a woman in my congregation for a while who, who sat down and told me and said, well, all evil comes from Satan because God wouldn't let anything bad happen to us. And it's like, well, you've obviously never been around a Calvinist church before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and so, but I, you know, she had she had come to Christ in a Pentecostal church. Yeah. And she was she was older than I am. And she had, you know, all the spiritual warfare stuff. And so, okay, how do we how do we handle suffering in our lives? Well, we do it when we, you know get the prayer warriors in line and we go to our knees and, and whether or not we win the battle in terms of that item, that's, you know, so-and-so's marriage hangs together right, right. or they're cured, they're healed from cancer or whatever. The meaning of, of marshalling this narrative of, of, of God versus Satan, of angels versus demons, that meaning will keep the people you know, you'll keep your church that way and, yeah. and you will marshal the people and you will marshal, you'll build an organization and, and you can in fact construct an entire life around that, that will spread all the way to the political realm. And so mm -hmm. yes. and it goes, yes. you know, it goes either way. So you've yes. got your churches for whom the Democrats are the shining knights and you've got the churches where Donald Trump is the shining knight. And so I mean, you can level that sucker up mm -hmm. all the way to the top. Th those are, um, you know, those are two strategies that we see commonly in church and, and there are more, um, but many of those who deconstruct and uh, bail are those who, for one reason or another, could no longer buy those narratives. That's right. Yeah. The guiding and, story collapses. Right, right. And 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 that's why so often it comes when you listen to like, you know, uh Rhett and Link have been, you know, some of the more recent high profile individuals, that their stories are always quite similar. Yes. You know, yeah. Dinosaurs, gays. Um, <laughs> you know, it's dinosaurs and gays. That's you know, it's killing the church. I hope someone grabs that clip and you know turns it into a loop on a song. Someone out there <laughs> I saw somebody do that with a Kanye quote from the Joe Rogan thing. I hope somebody grabs that. <laughs> yeah, you got me saying yeah. it. Um, and and so you know, and so part of you know part of what we do as pastors, as theologians, as church leaders, is. You know the 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 raw material that we are given is you know in the Bible and in the lives of our people and and essentially pastors bring those two things together and knit meaning out of that mm -hmm. meaning that you know helps the church endure and and if it does so enough um, you know the church 
the community will flourish. And again, for, for this reason, I see some of this we can do online in a Discord server. Some of this we can do over Zoom. Some of this we can do uh, electronically, but it's the it's the time, it's the sustaining, it's the presence, it's mm -hmm. the it's the life together that you know affords the you know I, I'm looking at a and I've bumped into so many interesting dead and living characters in my little journey. Ivan Illich, um, you know, Ivan Illich was a former Roman Catholic priest who was kicked out of the church, who had some really, really startling observations, one of which was that the institutionalization of medicine, for example, but also in some ways certain aspects of church have undermined the gospel because mm. it, it wasn't just um, resolving someone's medical crisis that really meant much. It was the actual caring for the sick that built faith. And, and so what happens with, you know, and, and quite famously people have noted that in a lot of ways, the so many things in our culture the state, modern medicine, scientific revolution, all of these grow out of Christianity. And very rationally, we tend to create institutions to manage these things and promote these things. Because, you know, if someone were coming to me as pastor for their medical advice, they'd be in real trouble. <laughs> um, so, but, but his observation was that in this practice of an institutionalization we have, the, the church has lost something and it's lost that life together. And, and so, yeah, I, I think there's also, you know, I'm going to have a talk with uh, Verveke and uh, JP Marceau later this week about Marceau's paper about miracles hmm. and Verveke's work, kind of putting C.S. Lewis's book and putting that together. You know, Lewis, so in, in preparing for that, I was, you know, going over um, Alan Jacobs' biography of Lewis, the Narnian, which is, which is my favorite of the, of the more recent Lewis biographies, and, and going over the fact that Lewis, of course, was you know, sort of the mentor of this Socratic club where it was unbelievable before Justin Brierley was born, where <laughs> every week they would have a Christian present a paper and an atheist rebuttal, and the next week they'd have an atheist present a paper and a Christian rebuttal. And, and Lewis, in the process of this, finds he is, his faith is weakest when he was um, most powerful as an apologist. Hmm. And why is that? Because you would imagine that, you know, because the word out of the Socratic club from, from one of the Anglican clergy was that, you know, when Lewis wasn't going to be there that week, that Anglican clergy just, just trembled in his boots because, you know, the atheists could win. But when Lewis was there, Lewis would always carry the day for the Christians. Mm. But Lewis makes the observation that, um, you know, he, he, he didn't say this exactly, but when he could win the argument, he didn't rely on Christ and Christ was furthest away. Hmm. And, and so 
and and so I look I look at the church now and I see it's 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 paying all this attention to losing its status and presence and prestige within the culture which has in many ways been lost it it's finding it can't hold its youth because they're deconstructing um you know part of what covid had to force me into was well i'm looking around in my building and very few people over 80 are here well you know what that's this church five or 10 years from now right, <laughs> without right. COVID. Right. And so this church is going away. And there's a certain liberty in our losing where we, in this very strange way, sort of have to once again rely on Christ alone hmm. and, and decide at a very, in a very deep and communal way is he enough? Is he enough? And, um, and I think it's, that's what those saints that we know in church have discovered. Yes. Yeah. Because they, they went, they got cornered into something in their life and it might've been a medical situation or a family situation or a work situation where they, there wasn't, there wasn't any way out. And so they looked to Christ alone and discovered he is enough. He can sustain me as I suffer. Yes. And I can lose my job. I can lose my child. I can lose my marriage. And, and I might even, I might even, I might even be, feel like I'm losing my faith, ironically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I turn to him and he carries me through. That's right. And so I, you know, even though the church, and I look at this fight that the Christian Reformed Church is going to have, and it might mean the end to the denomination as it sort of is meaning in the Reformed Church of America right now. And I look at, you know, that I look at the weakness of the church, especially amongst younger generations, but I'm not. I'm not pessimistic because at the same time, I look at places thing, like things are going on in the Discord server and it's not church. And I look at things happening in other spaces and I say, yeah, a lot of the props that we have put up around ourselves to convince ourselves of the Lordship of Christ are getting kicked out. Mm-hmm. But... I, on the other side, on the other hand, I look around and I think other things are happening that make me believe, um, make me believe the gospel still. And, uh, yeah, so I'm to come back again around full circle to where we started. I look at the discord server. I look at what has happened in my YouTube channel. I look at the conversations that I've been have able to have with people. And part of me, just as you said, when, when I started on YouTube about Jordan Peterson, I was kind of looking around at my colleagues saying, why aren't you doing this? <laughs> I mean, and it's not just because it should be done, but because this is more fun than most of what I do anyway. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, you could go for weeks or months without having, you know, deep 
significant conversations with, you know, people who are deconstructing or people who are atheists or, I mean, you could go forever without those kinds of conversations. And now I have to say no to them because I don't have enough time in my schedule for them all. Well, pastors, isn't, isn't this why we got into this gig? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so on one hand, yeah, the church is a mess and, um, and it's decaying and there's going to be a lot of dead wood that gets cleared out. On the other hand, I look at, you know, what's happening with your podcast and with the discord server and with Jonathan Peugeot and another part of me says, no, you know, this no. is, this is the work of Christ. This is what yeah. he does. And, and, and if you read the gospels, you know, I, I had a, I had a talk on the Stoa and um, they wanted to talk about culture war. And a number of years ago, as I was before I got into YouTube or anything, I was watching just stuff go back and forth. And it occurred to me that um, Jesus' ministry happened in the midst of a culture war that was more violent, more bloody than ours. (laughs) And and actually, Jesus shows us how to live in a culture war. Exactly. Exactly. And, yep. and, you know, the Pharisees want him to double down on, <laughs> you know, they've got their social, they've got really the Pharisees were culture warriors That's against right. the Romans. Yep. The yep. Zealots, you know, they were the revolutionaries. The Essenes, they were building bunkers. The aristocracy, hey, it's the Roman way. What's wrong with you? They have the science, they have the technology, they've conquered the world. Uh, the Greeks were really brilliant people, you know, live like a Greek. Mm-hmm. And Jesus walks into the middle of it and they, they, they don't know what to do with him because the Pharisees are like, you know, if he could, it, it, you know, culture war plus miracles. Totally. And know? there's enough of what Jesus says for each one of those groups. I mean, you've essentially, uh, people that listen that aren't familiar with your podcast that just are listeners to mine are going to laugh because you've essentially stolen uh, the, the episode from a month ago that we we did uh, laying this exact framework out that, that, that each one of those groups found, again, because of these twin truths, the, 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 the imminence of truth and yet the transcendence of truth. Each one of these groups, when Christ spoke, the Pharisees saw some of the truth that was at work in their frame. The Essenes saw it. I mean, it's very well likely that John the Baptist was an Essene. And so yeah. you, you, you see the Essenes, potentially the followers of John coming to Jesus after John's in, in prison. And they're like, are you the guy or should we wait for, you know, wait, wait for another? The Pharisees are coming to him. Nicodemus is coming into the night to visit him because he has pinged the truth that is at work even within their culture war tribe. The yep. danger that Jesus gets himself into is that, is that he didn't entrust himself to any man because he knew it was in men's hearts. Yep. And so once they realized he, the truth wouldn't be confined to their culture war tribe, the thing that culture warriors love the best is more culture war. Right. And so it's amazing how a shared threat can unite culture war tribes. I mean, you could even get into, oh gosh, who was the, uh, the, the mimetic theory guy? Um, oh, um, Girard, Rene Girard. Yeah, Rene Girard. You know, there's a yeah. lot of insights Rene Girard brings up in this regard is that when people inherently, when they, they have a much easier time rallying around a shared enemy. 
So how in the world was the United States and the Soviet Union ever on the same team in a world war? Well, because they had a shared threat. And so the presence of truth, when truth refuses to be confined to the cultural frame, deep platforming is going to be the least of your concerns at that point, you know? So there's something here to the suffering that we do participate in as pursuers of the truth, as truth hunters. There is death. There is suffering that comes with it. There is the loss of status that comes with it. There's maybe even the crumbling of our institutions, and maybe within that, new things are, are birthed. And, you know, I, I hope that your church has many fruitful years ahead of it, but it, it's also comforting to know that there's people out there that go, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, right? Yep. So there is something in which we participate in a righteous suffering that comes with the pursuit of the truth. And I'm like really encouraged to see people. I see someone, even though he, he doesn't, isn't a theist, I see someone like a John Verveke as a truth hunter. Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. Uh, and that might be uncomfortable for, for some, especially in, in my world, uh, the evangelical frame. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not pulling a, a Richard Rohr in that Jesus, just the name for everything, but the, you know, <laughs> that, that's, 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 well, there are going to be some emails on that one. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I appreciate you that. don't have as many Richard Rohr fans in no, your no, community no, as no, I have. <laughs> no, I appreciate, I mean, I, I would say I, I, I am, I'm not a universalist, um, I would say I'm a Christocentric inclusivist. <laughs> and all of that, all that means is, yeah, like the presence of truth, goodness, and beauty, all of that stems from Christ. So where we see that, we see Christ at work. But like what Bart was so brilliant in bringing up is that, you know, and one of his challenges, and I, I disagree with Bart on his dismissal of natural theology, but he brings up, he brought up a good point. Is like, what is the frame for evaluating if you're going to lay out a list of pros and cons in creation, things that you say are good and bad, you have to have a framework. You have to have a, um, an external point in which you're aiming your, good, your um, definitions, good and bad, of what is righteous and unrighteous, what is just and unjust. And for Bart, he's like, you can't do that outside of Christ, right? So it starts with the acceptance and faith of Christ. And then we can actually begin to see that. You know, and I think even one other thing about Bart, because I've really been fascinated by him over the last couple of weeks, because Bart even had this distinguishing, and it's, it's messy, and there's good challenges to it, but Bart even saw there being a difference between the sort of suffering that we experience that we might not like creation and, and some of the pain that we go through as being the shadow side of God's will which is a really interesting and, in, in, you know, for a lot of people in, yeah. in our arenas who might be interested in Peterson and Jung. And, yeah, yeah. Well, Bart's, of uh, course, a contemporary of Jung. Yeah, and it, it seems... Swiss. Yeah, and it seems like Both his cousin, Swiss. his cousin, Adolf Keller, was um, either a student of Jung or was really influenced by Jung. And Adolf Keller had some influence uh, in Bart's life. So oh. I don't know if Bart is directly drawing on that term by using the shadow, but he said, you know, there's the shadow side of creation. You know, Bart was even controversial in his day in thinking, you know, Adam, Adam and Eve didn't bring about 
decay and death in, a, in the, the, the physical and the phenomenological world. There's this process in which the universe doesn't even function without entropy, right? Things break down, things deteriorate. And part of, you know, maybe seeing through a Christocentric lens is recognizing those sorts of things at times, those sorts of things are part of the goodwill of God. But then he also had this other category of das Nishtaga, which could be translated as chaos or the nothingness. And living through World War I and World War II, he was really wrestling with trying to distinguish between what is the suffering that we should say is this is participating in Christ's suffering. This is the way in which the world works and we might not understand it, but there's going to be some decay. Our bodies are going to break down. We're going to age. You know, uh, distinguishing between that and what happens in Auschwitz. You know, for, for Barth, there was the real presence of an, a principality in power. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, getting to the, the Pentecostal friend that you were talking about that grown up in the Pentecostal church, and I think that's one of the difficult dynamics that w- we wrestle with today and will always wrestle with is the, the naming of that which is perhaps just the, the part of suffering that we're supposed to participate in in Christ and that which we are to re- resist existentially. You know, we have this sense in which, you know, this is the evil we are called to actively resist. Um, and and sorting, sorting through that is, is difficult. I don't know how we came to that point in the conversation. <laughs> the suffering of Christ and participating in Christ's suffering. Well, and the question of resistance is, of course, Politically, in terms of a culture war right now, oh, very hot, yeah. hot topic. Yep. And if, if, if Christ is to be our guide in a culture war, I mean, it's, if you look at, you know, the, the complaints against him, I mean, part of the complaint was, you know, sinners and prostitutes. Well, hmm. why were, why were, I mean, if in, in 1980s, um, you know, take back America to Jesus. Uh, prostitution has been illegal since you know early part of the 20th century. I mean, the the problem with prostitutes is that they are sexual sinners. I don't think that was the frame in the Gospels. I, I suspect the problem with prostitutes are that similar to those women in Western Europe who had their heads shaved after um, the. Uh, allied liberation of the Netherlands, the problem with prostitutes are they sleep with Romans. They sleep with soldiers. Mm. They, um, you know, and tax collectors. I mean, why are tax collectors and prostitutes combined? Because one is the male and one is the female aspect of, of Roman collaboration. Wow. And so Jesus, in in terms of the banquet of the Pharisees, where the you know, the sinful woman comes and, you know, washes his feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair. I mean, that's that's deeply scandalous and suggestive. And they are horrified that Jesus is not, you know, at the forefront there isn't primarily a sexual sin. It's a political sin. And the, you know, it could be that for Judas... We don't, you know, we endlessly speculate what was with Judas, but Jesus, you know, 
Judas probably simply got frustrated with whether or not Jesus was going to have totally. his come to Jesus That's moment right. and finally get serious about the Roman occupation. And, mm-hmm. and who really could look at the, the, you know, was Jesus simply turning a blind eye to the kind of cultural degradation and contamination that the the Romans were bringing in. I mean, it was a continuation of the Hellenistic corruption Mm -hmm. that, of Mm -hmm. course, the Maccabees had, you know, wrested politically and militarily, you know, the country from. But that Hellenism, they they were simply awash in a bathtub of Hellenism in that part of the world, and it just kept soaking in. And so, obviously, the Pharisees want to, you know, and why won't Jesus get with the program? Right. Because he yep. wouldn't. Yep. And and why would you why would you turn him over to the Romans to be executed? Because none of them could agree on anything except that the world would be better with Jesus gone. And mm. so mm-hmm. and that's what they did. And so, okay, so how does that inform us with respect to our culture war? That's really hard because you're not just simply going to take the elements in the gospel and paste them on ours. You're going to have to do the cultural exegesis and and also figure out how Jesus navigates in that culture war. You know, is Jesus, you know, is is Jesus out there, um, you know, I don't know. Bombing a pride parade? No, Jesus wouldn't throw bombs. Um, so, you know, and it's, and again, if you, I think the story is intended for us to, to deeply sink, have these things sink in. Why does Jesus, I often, so when I was, when I was in college, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a minister. I went to Calvin College, but even at Calvin College, it was sort of rumspringa because you didn't have to go to chapel or anything at Calvin when I went there. And so I started reading the gospels really for the first time myself. And it's like, why all this attention paid to Sabbath observance and food dietary rules? You know, who would write that in a book and have that mean anything today? And, and then, you know, the longer I go, I realize when Jesus heals people in the synagogue on the Sabbath, well, couldn't he have done it the day before, or the day after? <laughs> yeah. Why does he do it in the time? I mean, what Jesus doesn't know this is sticking his finger in the eye of the religious authorities and provoking them and prove. I mean, it's like, gosh. And so, on one hand, he's not provocative at all against many of the issues that um, that the Pharisees wanted him to be to agitate against, to that evil to resist. You know, Jesus is soft on sex trafficking. That's sort of their complaint. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, he sticks his finger in their eye with respect to the Sabbath and says, you know, if you knew anything about the Sabbath, you wouldn't mm. be complaining right here and right now. And it's like, wow. So when does Jesus resist? What does Jesus resist? And what does it seem he's negligent or soft on? And that won't make him a progressive either. No. Because you can't read the Sermon on the Mount and think, oh, Jesus is soft on sin because here's Moses and Jesus says, you think Moses is tough? Watch me. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) so what to do with this man? And, And we call him God. 
Oh gosh. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it's amazing. It's amazing. The church has existed at all, frankly, yeah. following this man. And, you know, I was doing, I did a series on the, the Sermon on the Mount and pulled off, you know, I think it was um, Craig Bloomberg who, who said, basically, you know, nobody has any understanding about how to read the Sermon on the Mount. There've been like seven major schools of interpretation on the Sermon on the Mount for the last 500 years. <laughs> and none of them can agree. But here we are leading an institution where we worship this man as God. Mm-hmm. Is there be anything more absurd than that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, you know, you and I are, you know, ministers in that institution and, and trying to, you know, so again, to come back to where we started, why would people be listening to your podcast or listening to, my monologues and conversations and and more people doing that than necessarily are gathering in to hear us do our official thing my my sermons you know, my sermons on the church website might get 30 or 50 or 100 or 150 <laughs> views yeah yeah my rough drafts get more yeah my monologues get more why is that well i think i think there's a there's a there's a suspicion among many that what they have received isn't working, but they're not giving up on Jesus. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my practical encouragement when I meet with people in person or people connect with me online who are going through what many people my age go through, the retin link thing. It's they they bump up against the dinosaurs or the LGBT stuff or, you know, maybe their biblical literalism. The, the sort of fundamentalist, really flat readings of scripture, they realize, oh, boy, this isn't tenable, but they think that their particular stream is the entire river. And so I think, you know, on a, like a missiological um, purpose that I decided, well, I'm going to do this because I, I think w- what I practically tell people is I fully acknowledge how hard it is to live in this story, this Christian story. There's no, I don't, if somebody were to somehow exhaust all of the different streams in the broad, historic, orthodox Christian tradition, and they were to somehow go through all of it, to read everything, to study under every teacher, to visit every possible expression of it, and at the end they go, I still don't think this story makes sense, I'd go, I get it. <laughs> you know? But the thing that I, as a practical point of encouragement, I always give people is like, hey, your unique church experience, because this was my story, my unique church experience was only a small sliver of what was at my disposal, right, within the, the resources of this Christian tradition. And so part of what I think you do is like you help people navigate um, within the, the Christian tradition with different families, different denominations, different church backgrounds. So you're doing that. I think that's largely a primary focus of what I'm trying to do is just expose people like, again, I couldn't have grown up in a setting that was less reformed, you know, and here we are as friends and uh, we don't argue about soteriology or, you know, the gifts of the spirit or all these sorts of things. It's like, you know, that's a miracle (laughs) in and of itself, you know, in a previous generation that would have been unthinkable. 
So for a lot of people, it's just being exposed to, they grew up in my tradition and all they thought were Calvinists were, were people that you were believed God was damning the vast majority of the, the world's population. It's like, well, no. randomly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, well, no, no let's, let's talk together because there might be some resources here. And you don't want to do the smorgasbord a la carte thing. And it's like, well, pick and choose. But, oh gosh, I think your, your Catholic listeners and Eastern Orthodox listeners, if you're going to accept maybe a fundamental premise of, of Protestant theology, which is that we're trying to get to the location. If we affirm that the inspiration is, is in God, and God vests that inspiration through particular vehicles. And as a Protestant, we start with the affirmation that Scripture is a closer source, a closer location of inspiration than it is the church, the institution, or people. Apostolic succession. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> that's really the two. That's those yes, are really the two things. Totally. It's apostolic succession right. or Scripture. Right. Is that's, it, the, is, that's the race. Yes, it, it is. And is is there a way of? of synthesizing those in a more harmonious way. Like I'm optimistic of it, even though the the dialogues between someone like yourself with a, a Jonathan Pajot, who's Eastern Orthodox, those are really charitable. I know you're having charitable conversations with Catholics and you're seeking harmony in those, those ways, but it does in a sense, the Protestant, the Protestant way is h- harder. It's more exhausting because there is this is admittedly a fault or a feature. I don't know what to call it. Um, there's a, a significant amount of onus on you to do the work of sorting all of this stuff out instead of my wife and I were just talking about last night and the conversation was like, sometimes she feels like she wishes she could just outsource all that work to somebody else and then just show up and do the practices, show up, do the liturgy and trust that our practices, our liturgy are going to aim us and orient us in the right direction. Cause it, it's, it's exhausting too. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it is. But I think it's, I think even within that, you know, as you talk to Catholics, not all Catholics think the same way. There's wrestling. Let's just talk about Pope Francis. <laughs> yeah, just name him. Right. <laughs> is you the know? Pope Catholic? So, <laughs> That's their question. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So does the that Mary even. laid that one on me. Yeah. Oh. Does that even, does that even satisfy what maybe some people are longing longing for. I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it ultimately, I don't know if it ultimately does, but I, I would say this, my maybe closing remarks in this regard would be, I think the tension is the place we're supposed to live in. It's living in that tension because living in the tension is living in the tension between the eminence of God and the transcendence of God. And there is no place in where we can be fully transcendent and fully eminent separately. You know, those can't be set separate categories. It's like, what do you do with someone who claims, like you said, what do you do with someone who claims to be fully God and fully human? doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just, it's a paradox, as Kierkegaard brought up. And the way that we enter in to the eternal is oftentimes it's through the paradox. And the paradox is reconciled in, in faith, but not through the consumption of just propositional information. So we live even in that tension of going like, the truth is at work here, but we're also constantly epistemologically humble. We are hopefully high in openness <laughs> so that we can live in that tension and go, yeah, I believe that these truths that we've received from the past, this inherited wisdom. And yes, I also think there is a, there's an ethical arc to the scriptures. You know, I had a 
I had a professor in seminary that said we need to follow the the the, the moral arc of football, right, from the pages of scripture into our context. And it's like that work is difficult. It's art. It's not science. It's messy. So if we don't live in the mess, we will settle into our culture war tribes and we will be closed to the possibility of the truth that transcends us. And the truth that transcends us by very definition will require repentance. We, we cannot be open to what transcends us without the acknowledgement that I am limited and I might only see in part. So to me, the joy, the place of truth for me is like right here, what we're doing. I wish it was face to face. And, um, but we get that even in part. I think that's happening in part with what you're doing, Paul. I think it's happening. I, when I jump on that Discord server, I see it happening. I see the tension of people living in that space. And if there's a way that we can perpetually live in that, it's harder. There's yeah. a lot more suffering. There's a lot more rejection in that place because it's much, much easier biologically for us. We have this deep, innate sense. And whether this is part of the original sin, maybe this is part of the fall, how this works in evolution, I'm still working out, but we want to break into tribes. You know, that's deeply ingrained. It's hardwired. It, you know, we go back, our last common ancestor with the chimps was, I think, 7 million years ago. So at least among humans of different species, homo sapiens, and that thing has been there. So the, to be the new man, to be the second Adam is the narrow way. It is a narrow way. It's difficult. There's going to be suffering. I, but I find so much joy in the tension now. I, I love living in the tension. I don't know if everybody can handle it, but I think the New Testament promise of the Spirit, the Spirit, I, I experience, and this is so subjective, but that's, that's just, I'm not like, I don't depend solely on rationalism. This, I feel the spirit in that tension and the spirit, the New Testament authors, I think it's Paul bears witness to the spirit is the down payment of what is to come. So like we suffer in the here and now, we, we experience like Passion Week and Good Friday, the death, the suffering, the resurrection in hopes to be vindicated in a future that we might not see in our lifetime. So I'm really excited about what I see in your life. And there's other people around me that I go, all right, there's people serious about building cathedrals that aren't going to be completed in their lifetime. And they're, they're willing to be the grain of wheat that falls to the earth. And um, they're willing to maybe lose status, to be deplatformed, to maybe never find a, an easy cultural tribe. And it's like, they're going to live in the tension. And you're going to make this major risk with your life. <laughs> you know, that's, I think that's why it's the narrow way. It's not narrow in terms of who God wants to participate in it, but it's, it, it's narrow in the journey and the passageway and the application of it. I think that's true. Well said. That's probably a good way to, that's a good, good way, way to land, land the plane. The plane. Huh? All right. <laughs> Well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate you being able to do this on a Tuesday. On, uh, you know, we're doing this on Tuesday. I'm going to try to get this out pretty soon. But um, do, do you want me to wait until you get it out? No, before no, I put it out. No, no, it doesn't matter. No, okay. put it, I put think it our out. audience is. I mean, you're mostly on podcast. I'm yeah, mostly on YouTube. Yeah, totally. So. There's there's some overlap, but little because I I am uh, I have to confess we are a little bit 
concerned about what will happen in South Minneapolis, uh, where our church is at in the next... Is your church in this area where a lot of this has We're on the same street George Floyd was killed, uh, 14 blocks away. Wow. Wow. So, um, and there's been a, a huge uptick in violence. We've had three people in our congregation the last couple of weeks uh, violently assaulted. Oh, my. Um, which that was never the case six months ago, um, two of which were pulled out of parked cars, one just waiting at a light, beaten by three men, a, a woman in her 50s. Oh. Uh, just a few days ago, a guy in his late 50s, uh, that serves week in and week out. Our first and second grade boys was uh, pulled out of his car, beaten, car stolen, you know. Um, so there's that. On that level, there needs to be some serious change. But, you know, uh, you just put it in your prayers tonight. You know, people are going to hear this probably after, maybe after the election results. I don't know. But there's, we do certainly have concerns about the response to that in in the city of Minneapolis. So... I'm glad we were able to get this in today because, uh, you know, we might be doing some work from, from home and buckling <laughs> down the next couple of days. Hopefully not. Well, I, I just want to say, Paul, I, I really appreciate what, you, what you're doing too. And it's been fun watching, um, you know, watching your, your podcast listening. But it's been fun watching. Again, I, I feel the same way. I feel we're... And we've got some overlap in terms of our community. You were just on the yeah. Discord server. And I know when I post this, the, the folks on the Discord server are going to be all excited. Oh, that's great to hear. But um, I, you know, really, really appreciate what you're doing. And, and again, it, it encourages me because, I mean, each of us, we've got our little community. I mean, it's, but that's the way it's always, it is with you if you're a local mm-hmm. pastor. You always yeah. just have your little group. And yeah. it might be bigger or littler, but in terms of the scope of the world, it's a little group. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not even at the top of the food chain in our church either. So I'm, 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 a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm even littler than you. It's <laughs> not a big food chain here. In fact, there might not, not do much longer. There might not be any food chain at all, but you might be the predator and the prey, huh? Oh yeah. Well, you know, and, and I, I don't know. I, I look at my father, I, um, my father was a pastor of a small church for 36 years in Patterson, and um, and and then he he took one other church in upstate New York for about four years. Then he retired, and he just for 13 years kept leading Bible studies and interim pastoring and all that in Massachusetts, where my parents retired. And I, towards the end of his life, I asked him, you know, one day, you know, what do you, you know, you're retired, you don't have to do any of this stuff anymore, you know. The, denomination still pays your pensions, you know, and what, you know, do you still like it? I says, Oh, I love it more than ever. Hmm. And, and to me, that is an ongoing testimony of the, um, the goodness of God. Yeah. Because, um, my, my father, my, my father loved people well. And, um, he didn't, you know, the church he pastored in Patterson, not a big church, um, you know, church in upstate New York, not a big church. Nobody, nobody paid too much attention to him with everything that he did. And same with my grandfather, but they, they learned to love people well. And, um, and, and I do believe that 
I do believe in the Christian story and and how my father has gone on to his reward. And so that's how we live. That's here. right. And what We're he's planned, what he was faithful in has been passed down into you. Yeah. Right. This yeah. is right. We, we, we sow for uh, a harvest we might not reap in the, right. here and now. So thank you, Paul. This well, was a I, blast. Will, I will pray for you guys, yeah. you know, for tonight and tomorrow and the weeks to come and pray for safety for your church. And um, yeah. All right. Take Thanks, care. Paul. Take care. Good talking to you. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, again, I just so thoroughly enjoyed my time with Paul. Hopefully that was evident. I so respect the work that he's doing. Make sure you go check out his YouTube channel, go over and um, subscribe to his podcast as well. I think you'll really be enriched by it. Even if you've just only been um, exploring my podcast in the past, I, I think Paul's is a great one. Paul Vanderclay is a, a, just a great, great guy to add into your rotation. So make sure you check that out. Today's podcast, again, is brought to you by the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. I'm just so thankful for their support, which enables me to be able to do these sorts of episodes without advertisements, without making a plug for a product. Uh, that's, that's really important to me. I, I don't want to do that. But I also want to continue to do this work I'm doing and to expand it. So I can't do that without the support of those people on Patreon, especially those people I, I want to mention by name that are supporting at the Theology 201 level. People like Jesse, BJ, Paul R, Michael H, Paul S, Sam and Nicole, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, Tim K, oh, Justin T, Josie, Eli, Carolyn. Thank you all for your support. If you want to get involved in supporting this podcast and the other work that I'm doing to help provide free theological and philosophical education to anybody with an internet connection, you can become a supporter on Patreon today. I also provide for those that are supporting the podcast. We, we offer some things to allow people to go a little bit deeper in their, their journey and in their study. And uh, you'll frequently find things like Q&A episodes, You'll find articles, you'll find charts and graphs and, and also uh, forum discussion opportunities where you can connect with other people who are also going through this, this process of, of, of dealing with life's biggest questions, of, of sorting through what they believe, of, of trying to broaden their perspective and their horizon and become more familiar with the rich history and tradition of our Christian family across time and across geographic location. So I would hope that you would find those benefits on Patreon, uh, something that's of increased value to your life. Again, if you want to support, you'll find a link in the description of this podcast. And there you can check it out. You can support, you can find out more information. There's varying tiers, varying reward levels, all that fun stuff as well. It's also of great benefit if you feel like this podcast has been valuable to you to share a review on Apple Podcasts. That's still right now the number one place people are going to discover new podcasts and your reviews really do help other people who might be searching for something like this but don't know it exists figure out that it actually exists. So thank you to the, those of you that have left reviews as well. That, that's really helpful. Uh, you don't have to butter me up or anything like that. I'm not, not searching for compliments, but if you found this podcast, the other episodes be of value to you, then sharing a review might help other people discover it as well. 
Well, we'll get back into the Problem of Evil series at some point. I'm still doing my research and due diligence as we jump into the 20th century. I would encourage you to get caught up on all those previous episodes, working on some other interviews, uh, some other standalone episodes that we will have before 2020 is over. Be safe out there, everyone. Take care, and until next time, we'll talk again soon.